0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Lead Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Barron, and I am so grateful you are back for another week of listening to the podcast. So not sure if you remember the episode, and if you haven't listened to it, I highly suggest you go back and listen to episode 54, which is where I talked to Karen Cormier about the power of networking. One of the key components to networking is having a killer elevator pitch. And the truth is, most people get the elevator pitch completely wrong. So, one example, maybe you answer the question Oh, I'm the VP of client services for XYZ company and I work on XYZ accounts. Okay, what does that tell me? I don't know what you do every day for a living. I still don't know what you do or the next person you meet says, oh, I work in L&D for XYZ Company. Okay, what if I have no clue what L&D means? It's learning and development for those of you that might not know and were afraid to ask. So if I'm not familiar with your industry, I'm not familiar with your industry acronyms, I am personally going to feel a little bit embarrassed and I might not ask you a question for further clarification. I'm probably just going to move on to the next person. And this is where my next guest, Neil Gordon, comes into play. He helps you connect through an elevator pitch that will give people the chills. And what that elevator pitch will do for you is it will help people connect with you, want to learn more, and most importantly, it will allow people to tell other people what you do in a clear, concise manner hence the power of networking. So I'm so excited to introduce you to my next guest, Neil Gordon, who is going to give you the formula for having a killer elevator pitch. Neil is a communication consultant, and he really focuses in on helping experts to become the face of a movement. I absolutely love that. He is so gifted and so talented at taking what you do and really boiling it down to this concise, impactful message that just resonates with people. I've had the privilege of going through one of Neil's workshops and literally he is such a great guy. He's such a great teacher and he's an amazing storyteller. So I can't wait for you to dive in and listen to my conversation with Neil. But before that, I ask you to listen to this episode and ask yourself, when in the next day or two will you sit down and take Neil's formula and implement it for yourself? So the next time you're at a work meeting or you're on a networking call, you will have that silver bullet in your pocket. Don't wait to do it because we all know that we listen to the podcast episode. We're like, oh, I'll do it next week. I'll do it the week after. And then you'll never get to it. So listen to the episode, take Neil's formula, sit down over the next day or two and really do this for yourself. I guarantee you it will have phenomenal impact, help you have deeper connections with people and get people super curious. And if you need some assistance on how to do it, you can always reach out to Neil because he is genius at what he does. And his information is in the show notes after the episode. So let's learn more about how to have an amazing elevator pitch that gives people the chills with my next guest, Neil Gordon. Welcome to the Lead Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Barron. I'm obsessed with helping people feel more connected to themselves, the people they love, their work, and their purpose. I'm a leadership coach, speaker, self-improvement junkie, wife, mom of two teenagers, and 30-year corporate career woman turned entrepreneur. This podcast will give you the tools, insights, and real, honest conversations that will help you lead your life so you can love your life. Let's dive in. All right, Neil, I am so glad you're here with me today. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. And so thank you for taking the time and uh, looking forward to hearing all about how my audience can really up-level their elevator pitches.
1: Well, of course, I'm very happy to be here, Natalie, and thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So Neil, I would love if you would share a little bit about yourself and your career history.
1: Sure. Well, my background is in book publishing, and I was an editor at Penguin a number of years ago. And the next thing I'm supposed to say in terms of my background and how I got there was that I was a bookworm growing up. I always had my face in a book and I got an eight hundred on my SAT verbal and went to an Ivy League school as an English major and all that. And none of that is even remotely. <laughs> Like not even close now. Like let's not even try. <laughs> no, I was an abysmal reader. I, I was good at it until about second grade, and then I got my first book report. And my dad liked to say that as soon as reading became work, I stopped doing it. And that's true. I barely read anything straight through to the end of college, and the SAT scores I got were actually like three thirty, not yeah. eight, which was okay fifth percentile. And so it was bad. <clears throat> I was just fortunate that I still got good grades without reading anything. Anyway, so it wasn't until the end of college and basically my first year out of school living in New York City that I started to actually discover reading. And one particular book kind of did me in and made me a communication person forever and ever. And that was A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. And it's this novel that just completely shattered my worldview. Even though it was fiction, it just completely sent me into this existential Pretty typical 20-something angst-ridden type of thing. And (laughs) I just couldn't believe that a book could do that to me. And so I just spent several years investigating how that was possible. And by the time I was about 27, I got an editorial assistant job at Penguin just because of what I, I mean. I'm skipping over a bunch as to how I found myself being hired. But the point is, is that I got the skills from just trying to figure out how the written word could do what it did.
0: That's incredible. I mean, what a shift, right? From going from not, not reading anything through to having this book really completely transform you and completely impact the trajectory of where you were headed. And so, so you're an editor at Penguin. And then give us you know, a little bit about how did you start in your career as a communication expert?
1: Well, I was not long for the corporate world to be. (laughs) It's
0: not for everybody.
1: (laughs) It's really not. I know you were in it for a long time and my hat goes off to you. I I wasn't really able to, I wanted to do things in a certain way. And there were just so many hoops you had to jump through in order to do stuff, especially with such a slow moving industry as book publishing. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so I left and I didn't really have a lot of referrals or a big network or anything like that. I just knew I needed to go. And I thought I was going to do kind of like freelance editing. And that's a viable thing to do now when you have sites like Readzy.com and other marketplace type sites where you could just get kind of freelance editing gigs. But that wasn't really the case in the late 2000s. So sure, I figured out that writing was something people did want. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I could write. And so within about six months of leaving Penguin, I was ghostwriting my first nonfiction book and over the next couple of years, I started to figure out that there were certain best practices in communication, not just from writing the books, but how people spoke about their ideas. Concurrent to all that, I was watching a lot of TED Talks and mm-hmm. I noticed certain patterns. And there was one particular technique that I noticed that was in the best TED Talks and completely missing from the ones that were forgotten about. And they were showing up in the best-selling nonfiction books and all of this. And I realized that along with other certain techniques were just game changers and very easy to implement, but mostly ignored or not known about by almost everyone out there. So I was like, all right, well, this has to happen. I have to, I have to write these wrongs. So I I I put myself on a mission.
0: Yeah. And so so will you share with us what is the difference between The TED Talks or the books that have it and those that don't.
1: Absolutely. I'm thinking right now of a particular TED Talk that is probably, it's probably up to like 20 or 30 million views by now. I'm not sure of the current number, but it's by a man named Dan Pink. He's written a lot of books and he wrote this and he did this TED Talk in the late 2000s. I think it was like 09 that he must have done it. And it was on the, Puzzle of Motivation, I believe the title is. And he's talking about how typically what happens out there in the corporate world and in other organizational structures and cultures is that carrots and sticks are how you motivate your workforce. You bribe them with incentives, with bonuses, that sort of thing, or you bring the hammer down and say, you do this or else, kind of. Right. It's the right. carrot and stick. And what he said is, The secret to high performance is not rewards and punishments, but that unseen intrinsic drive to do things because they matter.
0: Mm.
1: Now he says that idea about two thirds of the way into his talk and then repeats it again at the end. And what he has there is what is essentially the distilled idea of the entire talk that he says in one sentence. I'll repeat the sentence. The secret to high performance is not rewards and punishments, but that unseen intrinsic drive to do things because they matter. And that's what I call a silver bullet, which is a one sentence encapsulation of an entire idea or body of knowledge or insight or what have you. You could have a book that's 80,000 words long, but then you can distill the entire book down to one sentence. And when you see a book, that has a silver bullet and you're reading it on the Kindle. I don't know if you read books on the Kindle ever, but when you do, yeah. you do? Yeah. And I, yeah. I Kindle and you get passages that are highlighted aggregated yeah. over all the users in the network and you can get thousands or even sometimes tens of thousands of highlights. Not every single one of the most highlighted passages is a silver bullet necessarily, but the most highlighted passage in the book usually is. It's like that one essential truth that just empowers people and gives them that light bulb moment. And they're like, oh, totally. And they highlight, oh, this is amazing. Or they get chilled when they're hearing it in a speech or something like that.
0: Yeah. And so I love that you bring this concept up in talking about the silver bullet, because I find, you know, in my own work, if I'm writing, whether I'm writing an email or, you know, some content. And I know from, you know, From other associates as well. That's the hardest thing to do. But you know when you get it right because it just feels right and it feels like truth. And you know when you're reading it from someone or hearing it from someone on a TED talk, you're like, oh, they just put into words what I wish I could have synthesized, Right. right? Down to this one beautiful sentence. And obviously, that's why everyone's highlighting it. So, how do you do that? Because it's so difficult.
1: I'm, I'm very happy to say, Natalie, that while it doesn't necessarily become super easy with what I'm about to talk about, I've, I'm very happy to say that there's a simple idea, simple kind of tip or trick that we can use to start heading us ourselves down that path toward clarity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what I like to refer to is the movie Moneyball. And the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, right? And it came out in the early 2010s. And it's about how the Oakland A's of the early 2000s broke the American League record for the most consecutive wins using a payroll that was about a third of the payroll of the New York Yankees. And they won just as many games as the Yankees did that year. How did they do it on so much less money? So, So much less expense with the players and all of that. And we hear from Jonah when they're standing in a parking garage early in the film, we hear him say to Brad that there is an epidemic failure in how teams are managing their players and running their teams. And he talks about how traditionally baseball teams are all just trying to buy players. But the real way that you win is to buy runs. And so basically, You buy runs, you buy wins, and so on and so forth, right? Right. And so the trick or tip that I can offer to our listeners as to how to start finding that essential truth is to identify the things in our industry that we deem to be epidemic failures, Mm. and then juxtapose our way of doing things with that kind of failure. And so, in the speaking world, I help a lot of public speakers, and what I notice is that there's an epidemic failure among speakers in that they show up at the at the gig that they're doing, and they might provide like a whole condensed version of their entire book in a forty five minute keynote, perhaps I see mm-hmm. this all the time. And this is what we might call the show up and throw up.. <laughs> yes. right. But yes. people think that information is the key to providing value. The more information they provide, the more value there is. But my silver bullet around that is that people are empowered not by knowledge, not by that which they know is true, but rather that which they believe is possible.
0: Mm. It's not, that sounds like a silver
1: bullet. That's exactly <laughs> right. It's silver bullet about silver bullets, essentially. <laughs> and then Dan Pink's is also not all silver bullets have this kind of contradiction juxtaposition in the language, but a lot of them do. Dan says The Secret to High Performance is not rewards and punishments, but that unseen intrinsic drive to do things because they matter. So you mm-hmm. contrast the carrot and stick way of doing things with doing things just because they matter and they're important to the person doing them. Mm-hmm. This is a recurring theme in how we find, it's just one way to find the clarity. Sometimes it's a lightning bolt while you're taking a shower. You just never know. Right. That's how my silver bullet about silver bullets showed up is that I was like, I did this terrible workshop about it on a Tuesday night. It, I tanked it. I gave my silver bullet that I thought it was. And they're like, I don't understand what that is. And I had a lot of egg on my face because it, how could the guy talking about silver bullets not have his own? Then two <laughs> days later, I'm taking a shower. And I was like, oh, that's what it is.
0: No, I love that story. And before we kind of dive in to maybe you helping my listeners understand the methodology or the framework of how to do it, yeah. I really want to explore with you why it's so important. So you talk about kind of the show up and throw up, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm really hearing you say underneath that is like, it doesn't connect with people. It doesn't, it, it's not compelling. It's like, okay, great. You gave me a lot of information. What do I do with it? How do I action it? Is it going to compel me enough to make a change or do something different? So I would love for you to share why you believe it's so important that people have this compelling silver bullet, especially when it comes to talking about what they do for a living. So, you know, the elevator pitch, essentially.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. If you have an opportunity to talk about your work with someone in like a networking situation, I know a handful of episodes ago, you talked about networking Mm -hmm. uh, with one of your guests. And if you are in the position to discuss your work. There are two opportunities that are often squandered if you don't get that kind of elevator pitch type of statement right. One is you've missed an opportunity for them to want to know more about your work and potentially work with you or refer something to you because what you've said is so compelling. You've missed the opportunity for them to take meaningful action in the service of their own life. And with all the problems we have in the world right now and how much we're struggling, especially since March of 2020, wouldn't it be great if you could say something that actually empowered someone to take meaningful action for the betterment of their life? And what if in 20, 30 seconds, you could say something that gets that going and is a catalyst for that? And so, with Mm -hmm. so many problems and with people so hungry to solve them, what if you could say something that Led to them getting that kind of dopamine hit, getting those chills, and saying, "Oh, tell me more about that, or where can I look you up, or whatever the next step is." Right? Yeah. So there's that opportunity to work and collaborate. But yeah. perhaps even broader is the opportunity to have a meaningful connection with another human being. I I don't I don't know about you or anyone else, Natalie. What I've found. The the biggest loss since March of 2020 is this sense of fragmentation. Which mm-hmm. the information age was doing a pretty good job with with all of us anyway, that we were becoming more and more fragmented because things were becoming more virtual even before the pandemic took place. But if you're able to say something that truly empowers another human being in so little time, instead of just transactionally going through the motions of what you do for a living, and they just feel something at all. And maybe you get into some not work-related conversation just because you provided that service and it just got you off on the right foot. Wouldn't that be a worthwhile thing to have?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know what I hear you saying, Neil, is really the power of human connection and how powerful that is. You know, I mean, I think so many times we get into the mindset of like, Oh, I'm going to go to this networking event, or I'm gonna go to this party, and I'm gonna have my elevator pitch ready, and I'm gonna tell everyone what I do. And then the focus and the energy is on us, instead of on the other person where it should be, right. And we're really what I hear you saying is we're really missing out on this beautiful opportunity to connect with someone else. And I think what I'm also hearing you say, too, is and I think we we've all I know I've been guilty of this is we all want to give so much so we think that giving more information more content is of service, but what I believe you're saying is it's really about piquing curiosity. Yeah, and and, and change. Yeah, and inciting change and having that other person have something come up in them where they want to ask a question or they want to seek knowledge or they're curious on a deep level, either about you or your services. So I I love that because it obviously is going to get you the second conversation and the third conversation with that particular person. You're not just th- throwing up all over them everything that you have in your, in your, uh, you know, back pocket on that first meeting. So What else do you think most people get wrong with their elevator pitch or this type of interaction?
1: Well, it really is an extension of what we've been talking about in the spirit of that show up and throw up kind of quality. Someone says, what do you do? It's like, oh, well, this is my title at this company. And I do this, 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 and this. And there's another concept, a key principle in what I've determined are best communication practices in terms of influencing others, but in a meaningful and empowering way, there's another thing that happens is that the first thing out of someone's mouth is about their solution, their message, their title, whatever it is. And a really quick story is related. It's not specifically about elevator pitches as much as just a pitch in general, vying for influence. And this is actually about my father, who a number of years ago was substitute teaching. He was a retired teacher. And substitute taught just to pay some extra bills and have something to do. And at that school that he was at, the subs were not, it was a high school, and the subs weren't given keys to the classrooms in which they taught. And so when it was time to go into the classroom, they had to wait out in the hallway with the students for the custodial staff to let them in. Okay. And this was embarrassing for him. And he felt he found that it undermined his authority as a faculty member. And my dad had a history of being a rabble rouser. (laughs) Like when he was a teacher, he was very influential in the teachers union. He was always confronting the administration. And thank God he had tenure because he was (laughs) out of there. Right. And so so he he wrote an email that he asked for my feedback on because of what i do for a living and it was that rabble-rousing confrontational kind of email demanding a different way of doing things demanding that they get keys and i was like all right dad why don't we try a different approach and if you don't like it you can send the original email and i helped him to write a different email and he decided he wanted to send it and he sent it to the principal and the following day the principal saw him in the hallway. And he said, I hear you. Let's meet. And mm. soon after, they got keys. And so what was it that was in that email that led to such a clear influencing of the authority figure in that situation? And he didn't start it with, we demand keys. And he didn't say it's so embarrassing and, and humiliating and it's undermining my authority and all of this. The first sentence of the email was, we're a group of substitute teachers who are concerned for the safety of their students. And then he went on to explain how when there was a lockdown because of some kind of violence type of issue or something like that uh, the previous year, there were students who left the room to go into other rooms where they were being taught by a sub and they left the room to go into a room where the teacher could lock the door. And the email talked about how during a lockdown, there's no way to lock the door and keep somebody out. Right. The entire email had nothing to do with his embarrassment or his authority and everything to do with a problem that the principal cared about solving, Mm -hmm. which is the safety of the students. And so I tell you that story to get across the main idea of when it comes to writing an email or making contribution to a meeting, or as we were just talking about with an elevator pitch, Mm -hmm. yeah, isn't to start with your message or your solution, but to start with a problem that our audience cares about solving. And so... This is simply because this is what helps people to get more invested in the solution we do eventually share with them. Sure. So the elevator pitch starts with, instead of, oh, well, I'm a this and I do that, you might, let's say, you are coaching executives in the corporate world, for example, right? Yep. And so you might say, often there are many female executives who struggle with finding their voice at the table. And I'm just making this up, of course, but let's say- Oh, I like
0: not- it. I'm writing it down.
1: <laughs> Often there are many female executives who find, that they struggle to find their voice at the table and that they're overlooked and not ever heard out for their perspectives. What they then might typically do is just stay silent and steam or just try to pull someone aside or do other things that might get them Further along, but are still not as influential as speaking up in front of everyone. Sure. And so, what I've done there is set up the problem that the your perspective audience, like female executives, would care about solving, and then identifying the typical solutions that don't work as well, mm-hmm. and then provide the silver bullet.
0: I I love it, and and it so resonates with me because if if I'm listening to you and you're saying that to me, all of a sudden I'm like, yes yes, absolutely. I can completely relate to that. I understand that. Or I have clients that understand that. And all of a sudden we have this connection point where it's not just all about you and what you do and how you do it. Right. And I think that's kind of the, the the cadence that people get into and talking about what they do and how they do it. And you just kind of lose people because there's not that connection piece. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about the silver bullet method and, and how we might craft that for ourselves? I, th- I love the example that you gave. Um, sure. I, di- I did take notes. And I also love, because I have had the privilege of sitting in one of your workshops and going through this method myself. I love the story that you tell about being at a party and all of a sudden people start gathering around you because you share that first bit of you know, your elevator pitch. So I would love for you to share that. And then if we could dive in a little bit and help my listeners start to craft their silver bullet.
1: First of all, I just wanna recognize, Natalie, just how great it is that you remember that story because <laughs> that meeting, that, that presentation you saw, I'm living in New York now. I was still in California when we had that meeting. So it's been a number of months now. So as a side note, because we're talking about best communication practices, you remembered a story that I told months ago, and it's just simply because stories really stick. Mm-hmm. And it's not an accident that today we've had a bunch of stories you know, about my dad or about whoever. And so I just want to say I appreciate that you remember the story all these months later.
0: Well, it's a testament to you being great at what you do and also a great storyteller because I remember I've heard so many TED Talks and LinkedIn courses on elevator pitches. I teach elevator pitches in our Women Leading Powerfully program with my business partner, Lori Tabb. And that story stuck. And we've actually kind of disseminated some of the the, the gist of it around helping people understand, you know, hey, it's not about you, you know, just verbally vomiting everything that you do. It's about creating that curiosity and we got that from the story you told in that workshop. So, um, it's the gift that you have continued to pay forward. So I appreciate it.
1: That's wonderful. All right. Well, that's great. I'll, I'll walk around like get <laughs> out high today. And, <laughs> okay. I'm all, good story. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so beautiful. All right. So the story itself, what was that story that has had all this lead up now and hopefully, hopefully it makes <laughs> Hopefully it lives up to the hype. So a couple of years ago, I I'm still in California. I went to New York for a conference. And somebody who had been to the conference in prior years put together a happy hour for the night before the conference officially started. And so it was attended by some people, but not everyone at the conference. And I got there in the, kind of the first round. And so there was only about eight or 10 of us. At the gathering at that point. So we were all still talking communally in one circle and having one conversation until later in the evening when it broke apart. And the the person, the woman who had organized the happy hour, just turned to me in the middle of the conversation and said, Neil, what do you do? And then I started talking. And I basically gave what my elevator pitch was, or more accurately, I only gave about 15 seconds of it because then I got interrupted. And everyone started talking with each other. Now, what I'm supposed to say is that how rude they all were for interrupting my precious elevator pitch and that they didn't actually honor the significance of my work and all of that sort of thing. But the reason why they interrupted was because of my silver bullet. And it sent a little bit of an electric current through the through the room, and everyone started getting excited and talking about it. Mm. And so the silver bullet is kind of like the not the one I mentioned about, it's kind of like a hierarchical, kind of almost like a corporation is that you have like a CEO of silver bullets and then your yep. C-suite is all the other little mini silver bullets you have. Yep. And so the one I mentioned earlier was one of the C-suite executives, but the CEO of my work is basically effective communication values, the recipient over the sender. And so I started that day at the happy hour with the problem of how thought leaders and experts are struggling to attract others to their vision, to their message. And what they typically do is launch into as much information about themselves as possible and try to get, make themselves the center of attention and as much as they can. But effective communication values the recipient over the sender. Mm-hmm. And that was when I got interrupted because, oh, that's right. You totally have to make it about the other person. And they just started talking, talking, talking. And eventually, several minutes later, they came back. Well, what do you actually do, Neil? Kind of thing. <laughs> so it was a funny moment. But I'm sure you can imagine I was not displeased at all with the way it went down. Right. Yep. There we go. Right. I'll, I'll be telling this story someday.
0: <laughs> well, because I mean, I love that story. And I'm so glad you shared it because. The, the value of what you shared was you created that connection, not only between you and the other person that you were specifically speaking to, but you created connection in, the com- in community, exactly. which I think we're all missing so much of, especially since March of 2020. Exactly. And we're all longing for is this connection to community. Mm-hmm. So that's why I love and value that story so much. This is kind of a side note, but can you share with us For those leaders, um, you have a lot of people in my audience who are leaders in organizations. I love your message about, you know, communication is more about the recipient than the sender. Mm -hmm. How do you do that when you're leading a large team? Maybe you don't know everyone on the team. You know, if you're uh, managing a large multinational division, let's say. So how do you kind of tailor your message to be more about the recipient, if you're not speaking to maybe one or two individual people, but you're speaking to potentially thousands.
1: I'm actually really glad you asked me that question, Natalie, because I have an example of that from a very emotionally turbulent time in our recent past, which was the very beginning of June of last year, which was immediately following the very tragic murder of George Floyd. And by the time all of that had unfolded and it had become more of a bigger issue throughout the, like once the video had taken off and become a real problem everyone was feeling all sorts of things and i for one was really upset about all the performative things that people were saying and doing especially at the corporate level there are corporations that were just making all these pronouncements. And I just felt it was adding to the problem myself. I mean, everyone has their own opinion on that sort of thing. I just didn't feel it was helpful. And I have a pretty decent sized email list and I wanted to show up for them and I wanted to help, but I had no idea how, especially as a white man. And I didn't want to hide either. And so I had a couple of ideas of things I could do, but I wrote my list and I said, look, I don't really know what it is you need right now. Mm-hmm. And I could do this, I could do this, or I could do this, or just write me back and tell me. And with the size of my list, I knew what I was in for and stuff. And I got 170 responses and wow. I went to every single one of them. I even, I wrote an article about it on entrepreneur too. And the whole article and the whole point I'm making here is that when you're a one to many kind of communicator and wanting to make sure your messaging is in service of a larger body of people is that you ask. Mm-hmm. You present the question, I'm not sure what it is, or maybe you know the direction you're going in and what we're moving toward is this, but I want to make sure that this is in direct service to your needs at this stage of our company's development or something like that. And so you ask, maybe you do a survey or maybe you ask for individual responses depending on how many people we're talking about or whatever it is, but you do the ask and then however you can integrate what you're planning to do with what they said, you find a way to connect those dots so that you're speaking to your team as much as possible. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I love what you shared and the piece I love the most is that you took the time to answer the 170 recipients that responded to your email because from my experience being in corporate, a lot of times you're asked your opinion and then you it just goes off into some black hole somewhere and it's never responded to and therefore the next time it's asked, You tend to be quiet or you tend not to volunteer your opinion. You tend to kind of get shut down Mm -hmm. um, and not be as motivated or engaged to share your thoughts. That's right. And to me, that is a fatal breakdown in communication of teams when that process starts to happen, when people disengage from communication. And so I love that you took the time to follow up and. And I also love your authenticity of, here's a couple of ideas I have. I don't know everything. I don't know. Let, you know, please give me feedback. How, how should I proceed forward? Give me, What are your thoughts? And I think it takes courage and bravery as a leader to do that. Yeah. And to show up in that way. And it's interesting because people feel like that feels vulnerable. I don't think. People always understand as a leader, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the know it all in the room. And by asking the questions and getting the feedback, you're doing so much better service for your people and for your company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You really are. And, and when we look at it this way, we see that communication is an act of service and not just in terms of the words we use, but in, not every day. It's not sustainable every day, but every so often, especially in the more emotionally turbulent times, pressing pause. I mean, it took me several days to respond to all those emails and it wasn't a two or three word response. It was taking a few minutes for each one and, and putting some time in to respond. And every once in a while, that just becomes incredibly important just for helping people to feel that their voice is heard and that they matter which interestingly was the insight I gleaned from responding, they weren't really so much as interested in the specific solutions as much as sharing their thoughts and feelings about what had happened Mm -hmm. and what we need to do as a country to heal. And that was the insight. So I had a Facebook Live with them a couple of days later and they got to ask questions and bring their perspectives and interact with one another and all of that. And it also helped me understand that Every so often, it's going to be very important to check in with folks and see how they feel and invite them to respond to the emails and whatever it is. It's just, of course, it's important for people to feel seen and heard. That's what we ultimately need as people. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So I would love, I think we have definitely done a good job of telling everyone why it's so important. Yeah. Um, So would love for you just to dive in a little bit, if you wouldn't mind sharing Um, How do people identify their silver bullet and and how do they go about basically disseminating that um, so they can share it?
1: There are a lot of different formats for how to technically write a silver bullet. But fundamentally, what's always there is a cause and effect sentence that we take one action and it leads to one outcome. So. To use the Dan Pink example again, for example, the one action is motivating people through like show focusing on why things matter, basically. And then the outcome is high performance. So if you show people why their work matters, they will perform better, which is a paraphrasing. It's a reworking of his sentence, but it's the same idea. Right. Right. Another favorite example of a silver bullet for me is Sun Tzu's Art of War, on line 18 of the first chapter of the book. It's been around for 2500 years and still quoted in pop culture, so I think we need to give it <laughs> acknowledge its significance and the line 18 says all of warfare is deception. So if you want to win a war, you deceive your opponent. Right? So that's the mechanics of the sentence itself. How we find it is we go back to the epidemic failure exercise and we figure out what is the epidemic failure? What is it we want to do instead? And why is it we're doing it? Like what is the outcome that we want? And Mm -hmm. so the epidemic failure in how most people blank is that they blank. And so, and the real way to do it is actually to blank, right? So that's the basic fill in the blank kind of exercise. And so- perfect. So the the money, the money ball thing is the epidemic failure and how most baseball teams try to win is that they focus on players, buying players. But the real way to win is to buy runs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you turn that into, I mean, again, there are lots of different formats for silver bullets, but a go-to entry-level format that we can try is another fill in the blank. The key to Achieving goal is not blank, like the false solution, rather blank, the true solution. Perfect. So if we did the money ball thing, like the key to winning at baseball is not buying players, but rather buying runs.
0: Yeah. And what I love about that format is it gives the person sharing it, the opportunity to differentiate themselves right. from how everyone else is doing X, Y, Z. I mean, that really sets them apart, right? The Moneyball example. Everyone else is doing this. Everyone else is zigging. We're zagging over here. Exactly. And this is why we're successful.
1: Exactly. There's tremendously powerful stuff in that distinction. Yeah.
0: So Neil, I love all the examples you gave. Can you give one from Uh, maybe a business you worked with or someone you worked with, or you could give us a business example of the silver bullet.
1: Absolutely. There's a story of someone I helped a handful of years ago. I used to volunteer at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and it was this unique program that Gifted books to the children staying at the hospital, and sent the children out, sent volunteers out bedside to read to the children, and all of that. And I was a ham, and so I would read like Roald Dahl with ridiculous impressions of. <laughs> Is Mister Willy Wonka really the most clever chocolate maker in all the world? It was terrible. But anyway, I had a lot of fun. And the founder of the program had a ten-minute presentation to give to sponsors or employees of a sponsor of the hospital, something like that. And she usually dreaded these kinds of things because they would just kind of glaze over and be like, all right, when is this going to end and all of that? And they would just politely clap at the end and she wondered why she would even do it. Mm-hmm. And then I was coming in for my shift one day, she was all flustered because she had to give this talk. And I said, well, would you like to figure out what, you, what you're gonna say together? She said, sure. And we worked it out. And she had people held rapid attention from the moment she started speaking. And they rushed up to her with business cards. And one of them even invited her to apply for a grant. Wow. And the whole conversation we had that morning was only two minutes long. And that's because we had already figured out her silver bullet prior to that day. And it was very simple. It's just three words. Literacy can heal. Wow. And that's all it was. And we organized the whole talk just to lead to that lightning bolt, light bulb kind of moment. Right. And it made the creation of the talk that much easier because we had the clarity to start with. And even if somebody didn't have a desire to heal children in a hospital, which who would wanted That person, but let's say they didn't care and they're just there because their boss made them go. But they heard that one sentence, and let's say they had a child who refused to go to bed and was really hyperactive at night, and they figured out that literacy can heal. Maybe they could just start reading books that are gradually more subdued and more subdued, and then eventually they'll just settle down. Mm. So, the power of it is in the fact that that cause and effect sentence empowers people without any other context. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Neil, that's such a great example. And I love that we're ending our conversation there um, because I'm a huge fan of Children's Hospital LA. I actually had Dawn Wilcox on the podcast not too long ago, and um, she's doing great things to raise funds for exactly what you're talking about to help people, you know, help the kids Mm -hmm. in the hospital. So thank you for sharing that. And it, you just reiterate the point that, you know, words are powerful. Yes. You have been so uh, gracious in sharing what you do or, you know, how you do it and how to help all of my listeners today. But I would love for you to share a little bit about how can my listeners work with you if they're interested in that? And what does that look like?
1: Often. I mean, the thing about being a messaging and communication expert is that can reach into a lot of different things and i often do help people with different things but usually people find me because they're a public speaker and they're really wanting to land their keynote speech or they're going to be doing a tedx talk or applying for a ted or tedx talk and they're trying to get that clarity and putting a structure around it
0: mm-hmm. but it also
1: can be a matter of helping them to write their book or even in a corporate environment just getting better at the elevator pitch and interpersonal and group communications and whatnot on a more general level. So clients come to me for all sorts of things.
0: Okay, perfect. And where can they find you? I will also put put it in the show notes, but I would love for you just to share it.
1: Of course. My website is (laughs) neilcanhelp.com.
0: Easy enough.
1: And if you're interested, if your listeners are interested, there's a fun speaker quiz where you can learn one of your that you're one of five speaker type personalities. And it helps you to be captivating as soon as you start speaking using your personality. And you can get that at neilcanhelp.com forward slash quiz.
0: Oh, I didn't know about that. I'm going to go do that myself.
1: Yeah.
0: And now my curiosity is peaked. So the show is all, all about turning insight into action. So do you have any last words of wisdom about how my listeners can take some of the insights that one or two of the insights that you talked about today and um, put it into action right away.
1: I don't believe it will ever go out of fashion to talk to a person or more precisely ask them about the problems they're struggling with and then circle back sometime later with, I've heard what you said and here's what I'm proposing we could do to start solving that problem. Mm -hmm. As basic as it is, we can't ever underestimate the power of a person feeling seen and heard. And so if you're running a meeting every week and you sense that there's an issue, you can weigh in and ask them what kind of problems they're having. And then the following week come back with some sort of solution that's meant to be on their way to solving it. And that's going to get you really far. Yeah.
0: I completely agree with you. I think it's a great way to end our conversation. Neil, thank you for being so gracious. I've loved this conversation and I know my audience is going to as well. So thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it.
1: I've been delighted to be here with you, Natalie. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to the Lead Your Life podcast. My invitation to you is that you do one thing today